It thus acted as a center, emanating spiritual power and educational forces, which guided and molded the Reformation in the surrounding countries. Says Bancroft, more truly benevolent to the human race than Solon, more self-denying than Lycurgus, the genius of Calvin infused enduring elements into the institutions of Geneva and made it for the modern world the impregnable fortress of popular liberty, the fertile seed plot of democracy. Witness as to the effectiveness of the influences which emanated from Geneva is found in one of the letters of the Roman Catholic Francis D. Sales to the Duke of Savory, urging the suppression of Geneva as the capital of what the Roman Church calls heresy. All the heretics, said he, respect Geneva as the asylum of their religion. There is not a city in Europe which offers more faculties for the encouragement of heresy, for it is the gate of France, of Italy, and of Germany, so that one finds there people of all nations, Italians, French, Germans, Poles, Spaniards, English, and of countries still more remote. Besides, everyone knows the great number of ministers bred there. Last year it furnished twenty to France. Even England obtains ministers from Geneva. What shall I say of its magnificent printing establishments, by means of which the city floods the world with its wicked books, and even goes to lengths of distributing them at the public expense? All the enterprises undertaken against the Holy See and the Catholic princes have their beginnings at Geneva. No city in Europe receives more apostates of all grades, secular and regular. From thence I conclude that Geneva being destroyed would naturally lead to the dissipation of heresy. Another testimony is that of one of the most bitter foes of Protestantism, Philip II of Spain. He wrote to the King of France, This city is the source of all mischief for France, the most formidable enemy of Rome. At any time I am ready to assist with all the power of my realm in its overthrow. And when the Duke of Alva was expected to pass near Geneva with his army, Pope Pius V asked him to turn aside and destroy that nest of devils and apostates. The famous Academy of Geneva was opened in 1558. With Calvin there were associated ten able and experienced professors who gave instruction in grammar, logic, mathematics, physics, music, and the ancient languages. The school was remarkably successful. During the first year, more than 900 students, mostly refugees from the various European countries, were enrolled, and almost as many more attended his theological lectures, preparing themselves to be evangelists and teachers in their native countries, and to establish churches after the model which they had seen in Geneva. For more than 200 years it remained the principal school of Reformed theology in literary culture. Calvin was the first of the reformers to demand complete separation between church and state, and thus he advanced another principle which has been of inestimable value. The German Reformation was decided by the will of the princes, the Swiss Reformation by the will of the people, although in each case there was a sympathy between the rulers and the majority of the population. The Swiss reformers, however, living in the Republic at Geneva, developed a free church in a free state, while Luther and Melanchthon, with their native reverence 
for monarchical institutions and the German Empire taught passive obedience in politics and brought the church under bondage to the civil authority. Calvin died in the year 1564 at the age of 55. Beza, his close friend and successor, describes his death as having come quietly asleep and then adds, thus withdrew into heaven at the same time with the setting sun, that most brilliant luminary which was the lamp of the church. On the following night and day there was intense grief and limitations in the whole city, for the republic had lost its wisest citizen, the church its faithful shepherd, and the academy an incomparable teacher. In a comparatively recent book, Professor Harkness has written, Calvin lived and died a poor man. His house was scantily furnished and he dressed plainly. He gave freely to those in need, but he spent little upon himself. The council at one time gave him an overcoat as an expression of their esteem and as a needed protection against the winter's cold. This he accepted gratefully, but on other occasions he refused proffered financial assistance and declined to accept anything in addition to his modest salary. During his last illness, the council wished to pay for the medicines used, but Calvin declined the gifts, saying that he felt scruples about receiving even his ordinary salary when he could not serve. When he died, he left a spiritual inheritance of unestimated value in a material state of from $1,500 to $2,000. Chaff describes Calvin as one of those characters that command respect and admiration rather than affection and forbid familiar approach, but gain upon closer acquaintance. The better he is known, the more he is admired and esteemed. And concerning his death, Chaff says, Calvin had expressly forbidden all pomp at his funeral and the erection of any monument over his grave. He wished to be buried like Moses, out of reach of idolatry. This was consistent with his theology, which humbles man and exalts God. Even the spot of his grave in the cemetery at Geneva is unknown. A plain stone with the initials J.C. is pointed out to strangers as marking his resting place, but it is not known on what authority. He himself requested that no monument should mark his grave. His real monument, however, says S.L. Morris, is every Republican government on earth the public school system of all nations and the reformed churches throughout the world holding the Presbyterian system. And again, Harkness, although not always a friendly writer, says this, Those who see in Calvin only unfeeling sternness overlook the almost feminine gentleness which he displayed in many of his parish relationships. He grieved with his people in their sorrows and rejoiced in their joys. Some of his letters to those who had suffered domestic losses are masterpieces of tender sympathy. When a wedding occurred or a baby came to grace a home, he took a warm personal interest in the event. It was not unusual for him to stop on the street in the midst of weighty matters to give a schoolboy a friendly pat or an encouraging word. His enemies might call him Pope or King or Caliph. His friends thought of him only as their brother and beloved leader. In one of his letters to a friend he wrote, I shall soon come to visit you, and then we can have a good laugh together. We must now consider an event in the life of Calvin which to a certain extent 
has cast a shadow over his fair name and which has exposed him to the charge of intolerance and persecution. We refer to the death of Servetus, which occurred in Geneva during the period of Calvin's work there. That it was a mistake is admitted by all. History knows only one spotless being, the Savior of sinners. All others have marks of infirmity written which forbid idolatry. Calvin has, however, often been criticized with undue severity as though the responsibility rested upon him alone, when, as a matter of fact, Servetus was given a court trial lasting over two months and was sentenced by the full session of the civil council, and that in accordance with the laws that were then recognized throughout Christendom. And, far from urging that the sentence be made more severe, Calvin urged that the sword be substituted for the fire, but it was overruled. Calvin and the men of his time are not to be judged strictly and solely by the advanced standards of our 20th century, but must to a certain extent be considered in the light of their own 16th century. We have seen great developments in regard to civil and religious toleration, prison reform, abolition of slavery, and the slave trade, feudalism, witch burning, improvement of conditions of the poor, etc., which are the late but genuine results of Christian teachings. The error of those who advocated and practiced what would be considered intolerance today was the general error of the age. It should not, in fairness, be permitted to give an unfavorable impression of their character and motives and much less should it be allowed to prejudice us against their doctrines on other and more important subjects. The Protestants had just thrown off the yoke of Rome, and in their struggle to defend themselves, they were often forced to fight intolerance with intolerance. Throughout the 16th and 17th centuries, public opinion in all European countries justified the right and duty of civil governments to protect and support orthodoxy and to punish heresy, holding that obstinate heretics and blasphemers should be made harmless by death if necessary. Protestants differed from Romanists mainly in their definition of heresy and by greater moderation in its punishment. Heresy was considered a sin against society and in some cases as worse than murder, for while murder only destroyed the body, heresy destroyed the soul. Today we have swung to the other extreme in public opinion manifests a latitudinarian indifference toward truth or error. During the 18th century, the reign of intolerance was gradually undermined. Protestant England and Holland took the lead in extending civil and religious liberty, and the Constitution of the United States completed the theory by putting all Christian denominations on a parity before the law and guaranteeing them the full enjoyment of equal rights. Calvin's course in regard to Servetus was fully approved by all the leading reformers of the time. Melanchthon, the theological head of the Lutheran Church, fully and repeatedly justified the course of Calvin in the Council of Geneva and even held them up as models for imitation. Nearly a year after the death of Servetus, he wrote to Calvin, I have read your book in which you clearly refuted the horrid blasphemies of Servetus. To you the Church owes gratitude at the present moment and will owe it to the latest posterity. I perfectly assent to your opinion. I affirm also your magistrates did right in punishing after regular trial 
this blasphemous man, Bucher, who ranks third among the reformers in Germany, Bullinger, the close friend and worthy successor of Zwingli, as well as Farrell and Benza in Switzerland, supported Calvin. Luther and Zwingli were dead at this time, and it may be questioned whether they would have approved this execution or not, although Luther and the theologians of Wittenberg had approved the death sentences for some Anabaptists in Germany whom they considered dangerous heretics, adding that it was cruel to punish them, but more cruel to allow them to damn the ministry of the word and destroy the kingdom of the world. And Zwingli had not objected to a death sentence against a group of six Anabaptists in Switzerland. Public opinion has undergone a great change in regard to this event in the execution of Servetus, which was fully approved by the best men in the 16th century, is entirely out of harmony with our 20th century ideas. As stated before, the Roman Catholic Church in this period was desperately intolerant toward Protestants, and the Protestants, to a certain extent, and in self-defense, were forced to follow their example. In regard to Catholic persecutions, Philip Chaff writes as follows, We need only refer to the Crusades against the Albergines and Waldenses, which were sanctioned by Innocent III, one of the best and greatest of popes, the tortures in auto de fe of the Spaniard Inquisition, which was celebrated with religious festivities, and 50,000 or more Protestants who were executed during the reign of the Duke of Alva in the Netherlands, 1567-1573, the several hundred martyrs who were burned in Smithfield under the reign of Bloody Mary, and the repeated wholesale persecutions of the innocent Waldenses in France, in Piedmont, which cry to heaven for vengeance. It is vain to shift the responsibility upon the civil government. Pope Gregory XIII commemorated the massacre of St. Bartholomew not only by the Tenduium in the churches of Rome, but more deliberately and permanently by a medal which represents the slaughter of the Huguenots by an angel of wrath. And then Dr. Chaff continues, the Roman Church has lost the power, and to a large extent also the disposition, to persecute by fire and sword. Some of her highest dignitaries frankly disown the principle of persecution, especially in America, where they enjoy the full benefits of religious freedom. But the Roman Curia has never officially disowned the theory on which the practice of persecution is based. On the contrary, several popes since the Reformation have endorsed it. Pope Pius IX, in the syllabus of 1864, expressly condemned, among the errors of this age, the doctrine of religious toleration and liberty. And this Pope has been declared to be officially infallible by the Vatican Decree of 1870, which embraces all of his predecessors, notwithstanding the stubborn case of Honorius I, and all his successors in the chair of St. Peter. And in another place, Dr. Chaff adds, if Romanists condemned Calvin, they did it for the hatred of the man and condemned him for following their own example, even in this particular case. Servetus was a Spaniard and opposed Christianity, whether in its Roman Catholic or Protestant form. Chaff refers to him as a restless fanatic, a pantheistic pseudo-reformer, and the most audacious and even blasphemous heretic of the 16th century. 
and in another instance, Chaff declares that Servetus was proud, defiant, quarrelsome, revengeful, irreverent in the use of language, deceitful, and mendacious. And he adds that he abused popery and the reformers alike with unreasonable language. Bullinger declares that if Satan himself should come out of hell, he could use no more blasphemous language against the Trinity than this Spaniard. The Roman Catholic Bosic, in his work on Calvin, calls Servetus a very arrogant and insolent man, a monstrous heretic who deserved to be exterminated. Servetus had fled to Geneva from Vene, France, and while the trial at Geneva was in progress, the council received a message from the Catholic judges at Vene, together with a copy of the sentence of death which had been passed against him there, asking that he be sent back in order that the sentence might be executed on him, as it had already been executed on his effigy in the books. This request the council refused, but promised to do full justice. Servetus himself preferred to be tried in Geneva, since he could see only a burning funeral pyre for himself in Venise. The communication from Venise probably made the council in Geneva more zealous for orthodoxy, since they did not wish to be behind the Roman Church in that respect. Before going to Geneva, Servetus had urged himself upon the attention of Calvin through a long series of letters. For a time, Calvin replied to these in considerable detail, but finding no satisfactory results were being accomplished, he ceased. Servetus, however, continued writing, and his letters took on a more arrogant and even insulting tone. He regarded Calvin as the Pope of Orthodox Protestantism, whom he was determined to convert or overthrow. At the time Servetus came to Geneva, the Libertine Party, which was in opposition to Calvin, was in control of the city council. Servetus apparently planned to join this party and thus drive Calvin out. Calvin apparently sensed this danger and was in no mood to permit Servetus to propagate his errors in Geneva. Hence he considered it his duty to make so dangerous a man harmless and determined to bring him either to recantation or to deserve punishment. Servetus was promptly arrested and brought to trial. Calvin conducted the theological part of the trial, and Servetus was convicted of fundamental heresy, falsehood, and blasphemy. During the long trial, Servetus became emboldened and attempted to overwhelm Calvin by pouring upon him the coarsest kind of abuse. The outcome of the trial was left to the civil court, which pronounced the sentence of death by fire. Calvin made an ineffectual plea that the sword be substituted for the fire, hence the final responsibility for the burning rests with the council. Dr. Emile Domingu, the author of Jean Calvin, which is beyond comparison the most exhaustive and authoritative work ever published on Calvin, has the following to say about the death of Servetus. Calvin had Servetus arrested when he came to Geneva and appeared as his accuser. He wanted him to be condemned to death, but not to death by burning. On August 20th, 1553, Calvin wrote to Farrell, I hope that Servetus will be condemned to death, but I desire that he should be spared the cruelty of the punishment. He means that of fire. Farrell replied to him on September the 8th, I do not greatly approve that tenderness of heart, and he goes on to warn him to be careful that in wishing that the cruelty of the punishment of Servetus 
be mitigated, thou art acting as a friend towards a man who is thy greatest enemy. But I pray thee to conduct thyself in such a manner that in future no one will have the boldness to publish such doctrines and to give trouble with impunity for so long a time as this man has done. Calvin did not on this account modify his own opinion, but he could not make it prevail. On October the 26th he wrote again to Pharaoh, Tomorrow Servetus will be led out to execution. We have done our best to change the kind of death, but in vain. I shall tell thee when we meet why we had no success. Thus, what Calvin is most of all reproached with, the burning of Servetus, Calvin was quite opposed to. He is not responsible for it. He did what he could to save Servetus from mounting the pyre. But what reprimands more or less eloquent? Has the pyre, with its flames and smoke given rise to, made room for? The fact is that without the pyre, the death of Servetus would have passed almost unnoticed. Dalmengu goes on to tell us that the death of Servetus was the error of the time, an error for which Calvin was not particularly responsible. The sentence of condemnation to death was pronounced only after consultation with the Swiss churches, several of which were far from being on good terms with Calvin, but all of which gave their consent. Besides, the judgment was pronounced by a council in which the inveterate enemies of Calvin, the free thinkers, were in the majority. That Calvin himself rejected the responsibility is clear from his later writings. From the time that Servetus was convicted of his heresy, said he, I have not uttered a word about his punishment, as all honest men will bear witness. And in one of his letters replies to an attack which had been made upon him, he writes, For what particular act of mine you accuse me of cruelty, I am anxious to know. I myself know not that act, unless it be with reference to the death of your great master, Servetus. But that I myself earnestly entreated that he might not be put to death, his judges themselves are witnesses, in the number of whom at that time two were his staunch favorites and defenders. Before the arrest of Servetus and during the earlier stages of the trial, Calvin advocated the death penalty, basing his argument mainly on the Mosaic law, which was, He that blasphemeth the name of Jehovah, he shall surely be put to death. Leviticus 24.16 A law which Calvin considered to be binding as the Decalogue and applicable to heresy as well. Yet he left the passing of silence wholly to the civil council. He considered Servetus the greatest enemy of the Reformation and honestly believed it to be the right and duty of the state to punish those who offended against the church. He also felt himself providentially called to purify the church of all corruptions and to his dying day he never changed his views nor regretted his conduct toward Servetus. Dr. Abraham Kuyper, the statesman theologian from Holland, in speaking to the American audience not many years ago expressed some thoughts in this connection which are worth repeating. Said he, The duty of the government to extirpate every form of false religion and idolatry was not a find of Calvinism, but dates from Constantine the Great and was the reaction against the horrible persecutions which his pagan predecessors 
on the imperial throne had inflicted upon the sect of the Nazarene. Since that day this system had been defended by all Romanist theologians and applied by all Christian princes. In the time of Luther and Calvin it was a universal conviction that that system was the true one. Every famous theologian of the period, Melanchthon first of all, approved of the death by fire of Servetus. In the scaffold which was erected by the Lutherans at Leipzig for Creel, the fellow Calvinist was infinitely more reprehensible when looked at from a Protestant standpoint. But whilst the Calvinists in the age of the Reformation yielded up themselves as martyrs by tens of thousands to the scaffold and the stake, those of the Lutherans and Roman Catholics being hardly worth counting, history has been guilty of the great and far-reaching unfairness of ever casting in their teeth this one execution by fire of Servetus as a crimen ne fundum. Notwithstanding all this, I not only deplore that one stake, but I unconditionally disapprove of it, yet not as if it were the expression of a special characteristic of Calvinism, but on the contrary, as the fatal after-effect of a system, gray with age, which Calvinism found its existence, under which it had grown up, and from which it had not yet been able entirely to liberate itself. Hence, when we view this affair in the light of the 16th century, and consider these different aspects of the case, namely, the approval of the other reformers, a public opinion which abhorred toleration as involving indifference to truth and which justified the death penalty for obstinate heresy and blasphemy, the sentence also passed on Servetus by the Roman Catholic authorities, the character of Servetus in his attitude toward Calvin, his going to Geneva for the purpose of causing trouble, the passing of sentence by a civil court not under Calvin's control, and Calvin's appeal for a lighter form of punishment. We come to the conclusion that there were numerous extenuating circumstances, and that whatever else may be said, Calvin himself acted from a strict sense of duty. View him from any angle you please. Paint him as Cromwell asks himself to be painted, warts and all, and, as Chaff has said, he improves upon acquaintance. He was beyond all question a man sent from God a world-shaker, such as appears only a few times in the history of the world. 11. Conclusion We have now examined the Calvinistic system in considerable detail and have seen its influence in the church, in the state, in society, and in education. We have also considered the objections which are commonly brought against it and have considered the practical importance of the system. It now remains for us to make a few general observations in regard to the system as a whole. A sure test of the character of individuals or of systems is found in Christ's own words. By their fruits ye shall know them. By that test, Calvinists and Calvinism will be gladly to be judged. The lives and the influences of those who have held the Reformed faith is one of the best and most conclusive arguments in its favor. Smith refers to that divinely vital and exuberant Calvinism, the creator of the modern world, the mother of heroes, saints and martyrs in number without number, which history, judging the tree by its fruits, crowns as the greatest creed of Christendom. 
the impartial verdict of history is that as a character builder and as a proclaimer of liberty to men and nations, Calvinism stands supreme among all the religious systems of the world. In calling the role of the great men of our own country, the number of Presbyterian presidents, legislators, jurists, authors, editors, teachers, and businessmen is vastly disproportionate to the membership of the church. Every impartial historian will admit that it was the Protestant revolt against Rome which gave the modern world its first taste of genuine religious and civil liberty, and that the nations which have achieved and enjoyed the greatest freedom have been those which were most fully brought under the influence of Calvinism. Furthermore, that life-giving stream of religious and civil liberty has been made by Calvinism to flow over all the broad plains of modern history. When we compare countries such as England, Scotland, and America with countries such as France, Spain, and Italy, which never came under the influences of Calvinism, we readily see what the practical results are. The economic and moral depression in Roman Catholic countries has brought about such a decrease even in the birth rate that the population in those countries has become almost stationary, while the population in these other countries has steadily increased. A brief examination of church history or of the historic creeds of Protestantism readily shows that the doctrines which today are known as Calvinism were the ones which brought about the Reformation and preserved its benefits. He who is most familiar with the history of Europe and America will readily agree with the startling statement of Dr. Cunningham that, next to Paul, John Calvin has done most for the world. And Dr. Smith has well said, Surely it should stop the mouths of the detractors of Calvinism to remember that from men of that creed we inherit, as the fruits of their blood and toil, their prayers and teaching, our civil liberty, our Protestant faith, our Christian homes. The thoughtful reader, noting that these three blessings lie at the root of all that is best and greatest in the modern world, may be startled at the implied claim that our present Christian civilization is but the fruitage of Calvinism. We do but repeat the very clear testimony of history when we say that Calvinism has been the creed of saints and heroes. Whatever the cause, said Froud, the Calvinists were the only fighting Protestants. It was they whose faith gave them courage to stand up for the Reformation, and but for them the Reformation would have been lost. During those centuries in which spiritual tyranny was numbering its victims by the thousands, when in England, Scotland, Holland, and Switzerland, Protestantism had to maintain itself with a sword, Calvinism provided itself the only system able to cope with and destroy the great powers of the Roman Church. Its unequaled array of martyrs is one of its crowns of glory. In the address of the Methodist Conference to the Presbyterian Alliance of 1896, it was graciously said, Your Church has furnished the memorable and inspiring spectacle, not simply of a solitary heroic soul here and there, but of generations of faithful souls ready for the sake of Christ and his truth to go cheerfully to prison and to death. This rare honor you rightly esteem as the most precious part of your priceless heritage. 
There is no other system of religion in the world, says McFartridge, which has such a glorious array of martyrs to the faith. Almost every man and woman who walked to the flames rather than deny the faith or leave a stain on conscience was the devout follower not only and first of all of the Son of God but also of that minister of God who made Geneva the light of Europe, John Calvin. To the divine vitality and fruitfulness of this system the modern world owes a debt of gratitude which in recent years it is slowly beginning to recognize but can never repay. We have said that Calvinistic theology develops a liberty-loving people. Where it flourishes, despotism cannot abide. As might have been expected, it early gave rise to a revolutionary form of church government in which the people of the church were to be governed and ministered to, not by the appointees of any one man or set of men placed over them, but by pastors and officers elected by themselves. Religion was then with the people, not over them. Testimony from a remarkable source as the efficacy of this government is that of the distinguished Roman Catholic Archbishop Hughes of New York. Though it is my privilege to regard the authority exercised by the General Assembly as usurpation, still I must say, with every man acquainted with the mode in which it is organized, that for the purpose of popular and political government, its structure is little inferior to that of Congress itself. It acts on the principle of a radiating center and is without an equal or a rival among the other denominations of the country. From freedom and responsibility in the church, it was only a step to freedom and responsibility in the state. And historically, the cause of freedom has found no braver nor more resolute champions than that of the followers of Calvin. Calvinism, says Warburton, is no dreamy theoretical creed. It does not, despite all the assertions of its adversaries, encourage a man to fold his arms in a spirit of fatalistic indifference and ignore the needs of those around him, together with the crying evils which lie like putrefying sores upon the open face of society. Wherever it has gone, marvelous moral transformations have followed in its wake. For purity of life, for temperance, industry, charity, the Calvinists have stood without superiors. James Anthony Froude has been recognized as one of England's most able historians and men of letters. For a number of years he was professor of history at Oxford, England's greatest university. While he accepted another system for himself, and while his writings are such that he is often spoken of as an opponent of Calvinism, he was free from prejudice in the ignorant attacks upon Calvinism which have been so common in recent years aroused in him the learned scholar's just impatience. I am going to ask you, says Froude, to consider how it came to pass that if Calvinism is indeed the hard and unreasonable creed which modern enlightenment declares it to be, it has possessed such singular attractions in past times for some of the greatest men that ever lived. And how, being as we are told, fatal to morality because it denies free will, the first symptom of its operation, wherever it established itself, was to obliterate the distinction between sins and crimes 
and to make the moral law the rule of life for the states as well as for persons. I shall ask you again why, if it be a creed of intellectual servitude, it was able to inspire and sustain the bravest efforts ever made by man to break the yoke of unjust authority. When all else has failed, when patriotism has covered its face and human courage has broken down, when intellect has yielded, as Gibbon says, with a smile or a sigh, content to philosophize in the closet and a broad worship with the vulgar, when emotion and sentiment and tender imaginative piety have become the handmaids of superstition and have dreamt themselves into forgetfulness that there is any difference between lies and truth, the slavish form of belief called Calvinism in one or other of its many forms has borne ever an inflexible front to illusion and mendacity and has preferred rather to be ground to powder like flint than to bend before violence or melt under enervating temptation. To illustrate this, Froude mentions William the Silent, Luther, Calvin, Knox, Coligny, Cromwell, Milton, and Bunyan, and says of them, These men are possessed of all the qualities which give nobility and grandeur to human nature, men whose life was as upright as their intellect was commanding, and the public aims untainted with selfishness, unalterably just where duty required them to be stern, but with the tenderness of a woman in their hearts, frank, true, cheerful, humorous, as unlike sour fanatics as it is possible to imagine anyone, and able in some way to sound the keynote to which every brave and faithful heart in Europe instinctively vibrated. We shall now turn our attention to Calvinism as an energizing force. A very practical test for any system of religious doctrine is, has it, in comparison with other systems, proved itself as successful in the evangelization of the world. To save sinners and convert them to practical godliness is the chief purpose of the church in this world, and the system which will not measure up to this test must be set aside no matter how popular it may be in other respects. The first great Christian revival in which 3,000 people were converted occurred under the preaching of Peter in Jerusalem, who employed such language as this, Him being delivered up by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye by the hands of lawless men did crucify and slay. Acts 2.23 And the company of disciples, when in earnest prayer shortly afterwards spoke in these words, For of a truth in this city against thy holy servant Jesus, whom thou didst anoint, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, and the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, were gathered together to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel foreordained to come to pass. Acts 4.27 and 28 That is Calvinism rigid enough. The next great revival in the church, which occurred in the 4th century through the influence of Augustine, was based on these doctrines, as readily is seen by anyone who reads the literature on that period. The Reformation, which is admitted by all to have been incomparably the greatest revival of true religion since the New Testament times, occurred under the soundly predestinarian preaching of Luther, Zwingli, and Calvin. 
To Calvin and Admiral Coligny belongs the credit of having inspired the first Protestant foreign missionary enterprise, the expedition to Brazil in 1555. True, the venture proved unsuccessful, and the religious wars in Europe prevented the renewal of the enterprise for a considerable period. McFartridge has given us some interesting and comparatively unknown facts about the rise of the Methodist Church. Says he, we speak of the Methodist Church beginning in a revival, and so it did. But, but the first and chief actor in that revival was not Wesley, but Whitfield, an uncompromising Calvinist. Though a younger man than Wesley, it was he who first went forth preaching in the fields and gathering multitudes of followers and raising money and building chapels. It was Whitfield who invoked the two Wesleys to his aid, and he to employ much argument and persuasion to overcome their prejudices against the movement. Whitfield began the work at Bristol in Kingswood, and had found thousands flocking to his side, ready to be organized into churches, when he appealed to Wesley for assistance. Wesley, with all his zeal, had been quite a high churchman in many of his views. He believed in immersing even the infants and demanded that dissenters should be rebaptized before being taken into the church. He could not think of preaching in any place but in a church. He should have thought, as he said, the saving of souls almost a sin if it had not been done in a church. Hence, when Whitfield called on John Wesley to engage with him in the popular movement, he shrank back. Finally, he yielded to Whitfield's persuasions, but he allowed himself to be governed in the decision by what many would rate as a superstition. He and Charles first opened their Bibles at random to see if their eyes should fall on a text which might decide them. But the texts were all foreign to the subject. Then he had recourse to sortilege and cast lots to decide the matter. The lot drawn was the one marked for him to consent, and so he consented. Thus he was led to undertake the work with which his name has been so intimately and honorably associated ever since. So largely was the Methodist movement owing to Whitfield that he was called the Calvinistic establisher of Methodism and to the end of his life he remained the representative of it in the eyes of the learned world. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-450, 3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. 
and remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.